I think that we we put too much weight on it and we, we feel that the value in being resilient is that we should just crack on kind of thing and just get on with it despite how we're feeling and just turn up and put a smile on his face. And I think that that goes against our organic psychological kind of compass, really. Those who are living a life of freedom have optimised themselves and their lives in pursuit of one thing, choice. They've created the financial, geographical and time freedom to do what they want, when they want to. But they've also created freedom from their internal limitations, their story, their biology and their character. In this podcast, The Freedom Project, it is my attempt to shortcut your learning curve to having total freedom in your life so you can go and do more cool shit. I'm going to bring you deep dives into some of the most inspiring adventure athletes and business owners in the world. I'm also going to give you the key concepts of my coaching process to adventurepreneurs so you can start applying that to your life today. So here is another episode of The Freedom Project. Gareth Timmins is a former Royal Marines commander, emerging behavioral cognitive scientist turned publisher and author of Becoming the 0.1%, 34 Lessons from the Diary of a Royal Marines Commando Recruit. Having previously completed a bachelor degree in forensic psychology, Gareth is currently exploring a PhD research focusing on how humans gauge atmospherics in life-threatening situations and the link between rapid decision-making under pressure and the application of effectiveness in corporate environments. Alongside all that, today we cover Gareth's professional rugby career and the mental effects of that and how that progressed, best journaling practices, the value of keeping a journal, overcoming judgment around writing a diary or a journal, how life-threatening situations change how you act, the value of rest and recuperation when doing challenging things, and the paradox of resilience. As with basically every conversation I'm having on this podcast at the moment, I love this. There's a piece where we were chatting about the satisfaction of the moment you get really good at something and how much we both love that thing. The irony is I was thinking, man, this is exactly that. Like, I love this conversation I'm having. I love the way the podcast is going. And then the internet cut us well and truly really short. So we had to organize a part two so you you may notice a kind of atmosphere change halfway through and that's because we record this in two parts however it's an awesome show i think you'll really enjoy it so here is gareth timmins welcome to the show buddy um i'm going to start with a question around like it's an interesting question to start with talking about the end of your rugby career and what happened there yeah so oh wow I'd played rugby from a really young age uh, and even more so I'd kind of grown up in rugby league. My dad was a strength and conditioning coach at Castleford Tigers and various other clubs. So I've been in dressing rooms since I was about four years old uh, and been really submerged and surrounded in it. And I got to a point where I just no longer enjoyed it. I, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, there were massive pressure and obviously you're supposed to deal with that as being a professional athlete, but... I just stopped enjoying it really, mate. And the money that they offered me at Leeds uh, was absolutely embarrassing, really embarrassing. And I couldn't, I just valued myself a lot more at a, at a younger age uh, and still do. I, I, had, I still had a lot of like personal value and mm-hmm. it kind of went against everything that my dad wanted. He were really kind of authoritarian on, 
on me on me becoming professional and and whatnot. But I said to Leeds, look, I'll sign until I'm twenty uh, on that money, and then we can we can look again at the contract when I'm twenty. But they said no, it's until you're twenty three. And at that point, if they don't want you after that, you've kind of missed the the boat really as such to establish yourself in another first first team club potentially. So yeah, I just decided I decided to leave really uh, just to to like kind of leave the game. I'd left. I thought about it previously, but I just felt like it wasn't me in a way and that I wasn't going to be happy. Uh, and although that you're in this kind of intrinsic team sport and this team environment, you're very much an individual in terms of your crusade in, in, in your career. Uh, and it's it's not very t- as teamy as what you think. Uh, and, 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 and I suppose that sense of togetherness is not really always there. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect of this. And like, I've got family who played a very high level of rugby who I know very well. And he said that it's a similar kind of thing. And I know that there's, from other people I've spoken to as well, there's a kind of a mentality struggle within rugby um, yeah. that lots of people find themselves in. What's your experience with that? In terms of in, in in what kind of way, mate? In the mentality of like, or it, I suppose it's it's mental models or ways of thinking that become problematic in later life. Yeah, I mean, th- there's one thing that I could say, that, that I did see in rugby in terms of the long term is especially, and this is kind of systemic of rugby league in general, is that if you are not in the the top two or three, five best players within the team, or you're not earning the most money, and you're not wise with that money throughout your career, and it's not a great deal of money in 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 the grand scheme of things. Yes, it's six figures plus, but not 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 too far over that. And if you're not wise with that, you you uh, you reach this milestone in your life where you're like 30, mid 30s, late 30s, whatever, when you decide to retire, if you're lucky enough to retire at that age, um, where you have to transition careers. And that's a fundamental transition, that. And I just absolutely, um, I was really aware of that. And I just thought, what are the chances? And I'm not one that is uh, adverse from taking those risks and just going all out and, and backing myself. I'm not at all, but I just kind of thought that... Uh, I just wanted to cut and run, to be honest. I just thought I'm young enough here. And uh, I saw myself doing something different, but also I had this underlying feeling and this notion within myself that I was just going to do something. I was still going to do something really good and and be somebody in a way. When did the military come into mind as a possibility? Uh. Again, it's a strange one. Both my parents were from from military careers, and I'd always kind of discounted it. Uh, my granddad always said, "Look, you need to go in the Marines," but I'd always again discounted it as as, as a viable option. Really, um, it kind of dropped on my radar about a year from from when I finished playing rugby. Uh, just a little exposure that I saw on Sky News of the Marines looking for uh, Saddam's sons. And I just thought that's exactly what I'd like to do in my life. And at that point, mate, I'd kind of gone through so much turmoil. Rugby was 
literally my be all and end all. I didn't subscribe at school. I absolutely thought that being a professional rugby league player were going to be my all. I had no plan B. And as a result, I kind of, once that came crashing down, that realisation, I just, I'd plummeted into just a, a state of despair. I had no mentor. My dad didn't provide the stability that I, that I felt that I needed or I just didn't need. And uh, and yeah, I just, uh, 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 I came across the, uh, the Marines, mate, and then just kind of fully dedicated myself to that venture, that endeavour. And once I did that, I in retrospect, I were unstoppable really in terms of reaching the end. Have you always been this introspective? Because it strikes me that you're kind of recounting these stories with a quite a lot of ability to kind of um, give insight into your own emotional state. Yeah, no. I, well, I, I've always, I think I've always had a really good grasp of of what I want, where I am in terms of time, uh, where I want to be. I've always been very strategic in terms of what I want to achieve in my life. I want to, I've always, from being a really, really young boy, I've always wanted to be somebody and it doesn't have to be anything high profile or, or objectively significant, but just have that internal kind of uh, validation really that I'm really maxing out on where I can be physically and mentally. And that's what I've always kind of, uh, I've always kind of had that. I've always had that where, I think the rugby mate helped in that because you get like, when you're performing well or, or whatnot, there's no greater feeling than knowing that you're, you're really good at something. And I really liked that. It's a bit like, a, it's a bit of a, uh, an addiction really that you want to keep feeding off that kind of, I suppose, external validation or internal representation of how you're, how you're feeling. So, so yeah, mate, I've always kind of been very aware of where I am mentally and, and what I want to achieve. I'm going to guess there's a lot of advantages to playing professional sport when you get down to start training at Limston. Yes, th- there was, although I must admit at the time, because I'd, I'd left rugby uh, and I'd been out of the game for about a year, it's unbelievable how much like mental strength that you lose and that and how much self-confidence that you lose in yourself in sh- in such a sh- short space of time but what i didn't what i wasn't able to kind of reflect on and understand at that time and that period in my life and throughout training really was that the foundations that had been laid in rugby league uh, and throughout my life being in that sport and and getting to a relatively high level uh, in terms of the behaviours, the innate behaviours that I'd, that I'd embedded and the habits and whatnot and the, the, the self-discipline, it was it all just carried forward. Yeah. And I didn't know that at the time. It's only when I look back that I can see that rugby, although I could quite easily say it were a failed endeavour, uh, it provided such a real crucial foundation for me to move forward. Yeah, and maybe it was a necessary failure to learn. I, really yeah, I believe wanted. so. Yeah, I, I, mate, I absolutely, I absolutely believe so. I'm not a spiritual guy whatsoever, uh, although I, I do believe that everything happens for a reason and there's, there's something in fate and, and whatnot, but uh, it was a necessary, if you want to call it failure, uh, it, it was necessary 
it, it gave me that that platform to, to to go on and do that. Yeah, nice. So you start training, you start writing stuff down. What gave you the idea to begin writing stuff down and training? Yeah, again, uh, strange one, strange one. So I I did about eighteen months of 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 beat up and training, ready to go down to Limston to start training. And then just as I went to get on the train, uh, my mum threw me a diary and just said, uh, just write, write things down. Uh, anything, it'll, it'll probably help, help your mental state. And I'd like to read it when you come back. And at the time I just thought, what a bizarre gift. Like, you, you know, where I am academically, you know, what kind of, what kind of, what kind of boy I am and, and whatnot. And I took the diary and, uh, I sat on the train and it's a long journey, right? From, from up north down to about six hours down to Devon. And, uh, you go through this range of emotions and whatnot. And uh, one minute I'm feeling excited. And the next minute I'm feeling like really, uh, full, filled with trepidation and, and really, really apprehensive. So I just opened it, mate, and just started writing in the diary, just how I felt on that train journey. Uh, and it just kind of started this chain reaction of, of like, this I've always had OCD, by the way, uh, and this tendency to to be obsessive in in certain things, and it the obsessive nature of part of me latched onto that and ended up writing in it for a week, and then I wrote in it for two weeks, and then once you've got a month's worth of diary entries, it's almost like well, you just may as well crack on and carry on with it, and it kind of got to a point where, and I've never really thought about this, but on other podcasts I've been asked like, did that keep you in training and Potentially so, because you don't want a you don't want a di- um, if you leave and you've got half a diary. It's a terrible kind of reminder. It's a documented or failure. It's like it this is, is. You could look is. back at that and go, "Oh, this is how I fucked up." Yeah, exactly. This is this is where it went wrong, and this is this is me. And you've got that. I mean, obviously, you can get rid of it. You can burn it. You can do whatever. But yeah, but I never. Don't get me wrong. I never thought about it uh, like that. And it never kept me in, but maybe subconsciously it did. Yeah. What are the benefits as you're writing? Because like there's, I, I was never journaling through training. And part of that is because I was a reservist. So you're just like, it's very intense, long weekend yeah. of like, there's, there's no time in that to do it. You know, like, and when you go down for a drill night on Wednesday night, you're not like, oh, yeah. just hold on team. Like I'll just crack on. Exactly. Let me, just, like, oh, let me what, just pull this diary out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very different kind of approach. But like what was the, what, was there like immediate benefits when you're writing we are like, Oh, this is changing the way I feel, mate. It's a brilliant question that, and I've never really been asked it, but uh, I think it did. You know, I think it. I think it settled me down and calmed me down. I'm anxious. I've always been anxious. Uh, I'm a worrier, OCD and whatnot, and trying to control things, especially the the, the future and whatnot. But I think it just helped me just to uh, file my thoughts, really. Um, and what I have found again since is that whenever I find myself in in adverse situations or really tough periods throughout my life since I write believe it or not I start writing uh, or I, I, I become quite creative in adversity and that's exactly kind of what happened really mate is that when I were in that really adverse environment I started writing and then when I joined my unit I started writing again the first six months of training 
no, sorry, been in my unit. And then, yeah, at various points when I've looked back, I've often been in like really tough times in life when I've when I've when I've started writing. So it must be in some way therapeutic. Yeah, I th- I find that there's a certain clarity of thought when you're forced to kind of formalize it because like when you yeah. are just experiencing consciousness, it's always so messy, yeah. so nebulous, and so emotionally charged, and you can't sure. or it's a it's a difficult thing to do to separate the emotions from the facts, from the thoughts, from the physical sensations, from your behaviors, yeah. from your character. But when you are writing, you get to the point where you're just kind of recording objective reality. And sometimes that can give you a perspective on it. It's almost like um, with meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Like yeah, the, sure. It's a constant reminder to himself within that, this is the type of man to be by describing reality as it is. And you can kind of get yeah. past your anxiety through doing that sure you do mate you you, you kind of you, you're absolutely correct it, it puts down a, a visual representation of of it, it anchors you doesn't it in in a certain place uh and it, and it enables you it certainly enables me to to fully express myself as writing uh and, and know where i am and i can be really creative in that and i, I do love that but yeah i think when you're in adverse situations You've got all these these different things that are coming into your senses, and it does scramble your mind. You get confused, you get disorientated, um, and I've just always really found that writing for me, especially in adverse situations, and you could say I'm in adverse situations now because I'm under dead, a strict deadline now to in order to get this in, to get book two done and finalised ready for next year. But um, yeah, it, it just writing just allows me just to take a step back from what's going on and just write my thoughts and my feelings and express myself on paper. But it's also kind of like a, a two-way thing, really, because you realise that where you've lost yourself in two or three hours of writing, your problems weren't really that bad. Mm-hmm. You've been distracted. And it's, it's so you, you can kind of take a step back and look at all these different things and you're like, what you were actually worrying about it's not that really important because you've just distracted yourself for two or three hours, so it can't be that it can't be that pertinent or important to to anything. So it it, it does kind of provide a double edged weapon uh, sword, really, to yeah. to to where you are. Absolutely, absolutely. The the clarity of thinking you get from writing. I th- I can't remember who's, who I heard say it first. It's probably one of those things that's attributed to Churchill or Gandhi. But it's like to um, to to write clearly is to think clearly something along sure. those lines and i think that really has helped me in the past like the first time i ever took out a journal and started kind of scribbling down thoughts um there's actually some mindset mentors that i had that encouraged me to do it and yeah i just began writing and i was blown away by the a the gibberish that came out b the emotionality of it and see like the complete shit that i was telling myself the whole time I was like, "What? Well, how am I? How am I thinking these things?" Yeah, yeah. And why am I yeah, letting myself? It is. It's. It's a. It's a crazy journey, mate. You know, because when I was writing, when I wrote the diary in training, I had no intention of publishing that or that becoming a book. I had no real idea that that was me kind of my first engagement of writing and being an author, really. Um. 
I had no kind of feeling that I were expressing myself or what I were doing. I was just doing it. It's only now, really, that I'm able to see a timeline, really, and that progression from that initial writing period when I was 20 years old to like being where I am nearly 20 years later. So I'm now able to really, really express myself uh, in, in, a, in a writing kind of way that I'm not really able to do verbally. Yeah, yeah, I get if, that. I've recognised that within it, myself as well. It, yeah, if, it's like I, I would verb. I'm so much more articulate when I'm writing than I am when I'm communicating verbally, and that's what I think I like about it. And I think when it what it comes down to again fundamentally is this: when you're playing rugby and you do something really cool, or you you're performing really well, you kind of you get this internal satisfaction and that's what writing does for me now it gives me that internal satisfaction that i'm actually pretty good at some well i feel like i'm pretty good at something yeah there's no better feeling to me anyway that than developing competence at something when yeah, i'm sure. like sure i'm shit hot at this the few times that i've grasped it when i'm climbing or when i'm like skiing is more kind of um mm. relevant example because better at yeah it. um so it's like when i get that feeling of like putting in a big turn and you're like that was fucking sick yeah you nailed it yeah yeah Yeah. there's nothing better than that and i think to some degree we're all seeking that and it's about finding it that is right for you because there's almost like you've got to get the right peg for the right hole for you exactly exactly and and i talk about that a lot especially in book two is like you've got to find your purpose it's the only way that you will uh be able to harness the self-discipline that you need to kind of keep coming through the adversity and, and, and overcoming the obstacles and stuff. But your purpose is absolutely key. And I think that bizarrely, all these different things that I've gone through and the setbacks and you could the, the failures and whatnot, have, they've all been key pieces of the puzzle in order to, for me to arrive here and be, have this platform to write in, in, a, in, a, in a weird way. Like it, in a way, like it were always meant to be. Strange, it's so, it's so weird. Yeah, how old were you when you went down to um, to Limston? Just turned twenty. Okay, so when you think of most recruits, twenty years old, down at down at Limston, like going through the most arduous basic military training in the world, or so the caption goes, you yeah. don't think of them like grabbing a pen out and and writing down their thoughts. Like, how was that perceived amongst the rest of the troop? I mean, the lads kind of, they did my head in a bit just because they were always either, at the start, they were asking me what I was doing. I never had any kind of uh, friction uh, to, to what I was doing. It were, all, it were always really positive response. But at the start, it were like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And then lads, certain lads would come and sit on my bed sometimes and, and look at what I was trying to write or ask me questions about what I was doing. And obviously when you're tired and the last thing you want to do is write, but you feel obliged to do it because you wanted to be consistent with it and not miss anything and, and, and whatnot. Uh, it frustrated me a bit. I wanted the privacy. I just wanted my own privacy to do it. 
And sometimes I didn't feel like I got that from the lads. Obviously, you're all living together, so how, how are you going to do? But my biggest kind of concern was the training team. And I thought if they, uh, if they find it too early in training, they'll probably tear it apart or they won't allow me to do it. So I had to kind of be really secret with it and take it into the field. I'd waterproof it and, and whatever else and just kind of do it covertly in a way. Uh, towards the middle and the back end of training, they realised that I were doing it and they loved it. Hmm. And it were absolutely massive and crucial in terms of me being, a, being able to finish that project off. Because, I mean, I've said in the diary, they, they found my birthday cards on my 21st birthday and they ripped them all up and just said there'll be no birthdays in here. So I just thought if they find the car, if they find the, the, uh, the diary, that's what we'll do. Hmm. But luckily yeah, they got right behind it. They thought it were a brilliant idea and a concept. And yeah, it just, it just, it were, it were just perfect. That's interesting. Like, was that the whole training team as well? Could you feel that from the entire training team or was it like one bloke in particular? The whole training team. I think the whole team, the old training team at some point knew I was doing it. Uh, and you've got to bear in mind, this was like back in 2005 and, uh, yeah, I mean, time had moved on a lot, but the cultural norms within the Marines in 2005 were still the same as what they'd been in the 90s and yeah. aspects of the 80s. So it was still not like it is now. It was still like really raw and unforgiving environment that you were kind of exposed to, really. So, yeah, the fact that they got behind it is remarkable, really. Yeah, that's a really cool thing to do. I really like that. Have you... um? read where men win glory it's a it's a book about pat tillman the nfl player who decided to basically 9-11 happened he decided to he was a professional professional nfl player like four million dollar a year contract like doing really wow. well um and he went fuck this and joined the u.s rangers when he was um when he was a professional football player really and wow he actually got like tragically killed in action and worse than that is blue on blue and oh, God. it was like but he kept a diary for the entire like basically his entire adult life and it documents bits of that and then Did he really? john krakow who is a fantastic wow. journalist wow. He, he's written a few really amazing books he has explored that and the u.s government's like desire to cover it up and a bunch of other things that goes along with that it's, it's an amazing book but the insights wow. that you get from um from people who are able to articulate that process like yourself yeah is fascinating not just to civilians who will never experience that but yeah. all aspects of the military too it's like yeah like, i think i saw you say somewhere else um like i everyone thinks oh i wish i did that yeah sure i mean there's been so many people that have like i can't believe i was like the first to ever do it really but and everybody, a lot of people have said, oh, yeah, but uh, you must have had a, a soft training team or I wouldn't have been allowed to do that in my day kind of thing. But we had it tough. We had it really, really tough. And it and there were nothing easy about it. It added more stress to what I was doing. But I just, I think because of the OCD that I've got, I was just able to keep it. But um, yeah, it's been absolutely invaluable in terms of what, the content that that has brought and again coming back to like the articulation i've thought about this recently i think a lot of a lot of the good mindset books that are out there 
have been written by really articulate people that have not necessarily had the the actual experience. Mm. It's more theoretical understanding that they've learned from academia or whatever. On the flip side of that, you get all these people that have done all this really crazy hard shit, but they're probably not able to articulate themselves in a writing sense what's in the mind onto paper. And from some bizarre twist of fate, and I'm saying this modestly, uh, maybe I'm, maybe I haven't, or maybe maybe I am. But I've I've had the experience, and through university and whatnot, and, and various other kind of exposures to certain things, found myself in a position where I think I'm able to articulate in a way that the reader can understand experiences that I've had, and I think it's quite a unique position to be in. Definitely. Definitely, it's, it's a it's a very slim portion of the people who do difficult shit and the people who yeah. articulate articulate enough to describe that, and that, that's describe, a very yeah. thin part of the Venn diagram. Yeah, it's it's weird, mate, because when I had my uh, when the publishers were pitching to me to try and get me to sign for becoming, I went with Hodder and the team at Hodder. One of the marketing strategies that Hodder just said. Uh, it's so unique that you've that, that there's somebody like coming from the angle that you're coming from that you've been in the Marines and then you've done forensic psychology and you're studying all other elements of psychology. It's it's a u- unique kind of package to come together and and then find yourself writing. So it's yeah, it's it's good, mate. How did your publishers find out about it? So oh God, I I, I wrote the book and then quite brazenly said that it were going to get published when it wasn't. I had no guarantee, but I'm very much one of these people that just thinks, you know what? Live it. If if you want to, if you want to be this kind of person, first start dressing like it, act like it. I just thought I'm going to put it out there put all my energy into it and I'll manifest it. It'll come true. Uh, and that's what I, that's kind of the process that I did. It got so much wind behind it and intrigue and whatnot. I sent it off to publishers. It got 50 rejections. Uh, tailored submissions that I sent off. Originally, I got no response. One person got back and said, "It'll it's, this genre or type of writing's been and gone." And then, luckily, I met an agent, and he said, "I love the title of the book." Uh, I sent him the content. He said, "I love the content." He said, "But it's missing something." He said, "I'd like you to think about adding a lesson in for the reader after each week." And I just said, well, what kind of lesson? And he said, I don't know, something that they can use to develop a different way of thinking. And mate, the timing of this was just unbelievable because I just finished uni. Uh, so I were able to deconstruct it psychologically. Uh, I were able to articulate and, and write down and also water down academic material in a way that your, your layperson can understand it. And it was the first lockdown. So I just, it all kind of came together for this perfect storm. And I just wrote solid six in the morning till 11 o'clock at night for three months and uh, got all these lessons in a massive beard and weren't getting a shower for days on end and not eating properly. But I was just so committed to writing. And uh, eventually I sent it back off to my agent. He sent it off to publishers and it got like, uh, I don't know, three or five offers. That's incredible. It's yeah. incredible also to get a book done in three months. Well, I'd got the all the 
the, the backbone of it, the diary entries, was already done, you see. So what, what I did in the three months was just get in the outline of the lessons that I wanted. And then we went through various editing phases, which more content were, were allowed to be, be, be written. But the, the main thing was getting the, the deal over the line, really. Mm. The reason why I was so frantic in terms of writing it, mate, is because my agent said, who's been, who's a brilliant friend now, said, I like it, but I'd like to see the lessons. But he didn't tell me who were going to represent me or, in a sense, open the doors. So I like, Oh my god! I don't want him to like disappear or forget who I am or or go back on his words. So I was just like absolutely relentless in terms of getting this done and getting it back to him and making him, in a sense, believe in me. So I'm well aware that when you publish a book or you send it to publishers and you're like, okay, it's out there. It's usually at this point where you're like, you're trying to polish it still, and there's a few things that you could like change. And then I'm guessing as well, like. I'm, I'm like on a very small scale. If I press send on like an ad that I'm running for um, for the business, or if I press send on an email to outreach to a guest, or like social media posts, I'm always thinking, "Fuck!" As soon as I press it, like this is what I wish I'd put in. Is there anything that you wish you'd put in that book now? Hand on out, mate. No, and that is very, very difficult for me to kind of would be very. It's not hard for me to say because I'm a perfectionist and I always want that elusive edge of perfection in anything that I do. I always said that I wouldn't have done or attempted to do the book if I didn't feel I could execute it and for it to get out there and make an impact. And I'm the same with book two in a way. But uh, I was so obsessed with it and living and breathing that every single day as a project. So I didn't have that feeling uh, I can the finished product of that is something that from the front cover to the to the back to the acknowledgements at the end I'm just everything for me were just on point nice. yeah there's I mean there's certain there's a little section at the back which I think when it went through editing the edited what I were trying to get at and it just kind of didn't really make any sense uh, and at the time, I was really kind of precious about it and saying, look, I want this changing. This is not ideal. It's gone to print and blah, 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 blah. But now I'm just all, all them kind of initial things that you want have kind of have, have dissipated, really. Where did the interest in psychology and why we do the things we do come from? Yeah, um, I've always been really fascinated in psychology, always been interested in how people are able to that are going for the same the same kind of plight and same how can people come out on top? Why are some people more extraordinary than others when they've had the same kind of or it would appear that they've had the same kind of experiences? Why do people do what they do? Why do people act in the way that they act? Why is human behaviour uh, elicited in certain ways? And why is why are things like they are? Why is so society and socially constructed in, in the way there is. So I've always had these kind of intrigues and whatnot. And basically my, my uh, one of the, one of the family members is, is really into psychology. And we used to have these debates on uh, 
social structures of society? Why is it like this? Why is racism like this? Why are what, what about gender and stuff? And we always have just these real fierce debates in the house, all the way, all the way through growing up. So I've always been really interested in it. And I started doing security and risk management because that's what the sector that I were in. But I just got the course and I just found it completely boring and knocked it. And then I just thought I'm going to study psychology forensics. If you're an adventurepreneur and you want more freedom to do more cool shit, then I want to help you do that. Every month, I take on a maximum of three new clients into my high-performance adventurepreneur program. This is a completely bespoke, personal, and deep-dive program giving you complete freedom, teaching you high-performance mastery. It's application and invite only, and I accept only those who are the best fit for the program. To apply for your space, head to my Instagram, Tom Foxley, F-O-X-L-E-Y, and send me a message with the word interested. And mate, as soon as I started that, I was fully in, like both feet submerged and just couldn't get enough of it. Reading, reading, reading. As soon as, believe it or not, as soon as term finished or the year finished, the the study year finished, I got depressed. I was like the opposite to like a normal student. As soon as it finished, I was like, oh no, please don't finish. I want to carry on. And then I'd, I'd get really depressed and read more content, keep reading, reading, reading. I was just fully into it, mate. It was like a match made in heaven. What did you learn whilst you were studying psychology that like, really had a, a solid impact on the way you lived your life? I think uh, we did... The, the first year in psychology was, uh, was social science, like the construct of society uh, and why you've got kind of like class structure, why you've got uh, community the sense of connectedness in, in different kind of locations and whatnot. And just basically how, how our lives are constructed and formed through social science. And I think that we're just, it's like all the, the lay person perspective that you have growing up about all this uh, information that, you know, just from without studying psychology, just from being human and your lived experience, it kind of dotted the T's and, 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 connected the dots really in terms of putting the theory and the 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 academic the academic base behind it and i think as soon as i got that it was just like a a massive light bulb moment it just answered so many questions and it was just so enlightening really i think as well in terms of my writing enable the ability to the ability to express myself i think that was that came from the academic writing process being able to write academically uh and express myself in that way and be creative. Uh, I can just remember like on each assignment, I just really wanted to express myself and be flamboyant with literature. And I think that in doing so, it just allowed me to then take that and just adopt it into my writing in, in terms of now writing books. So they were like a multifaceted really. I, I just really got a lot of, a lot of growth and a lot of like kind of new skills from it. That, like wanting to write flamboyantly obviously there's like the styles of writing that you get into and styles of communicating does that is that something you have to like turn up and down if you're working or if you're creating something that's meant for an academic audience as opposed to a blog post or as opposed to a social media post or a book sure i mean academic writing is is well it's academic writing it's often quite quite 
I suppose it's heavy. It's it's there's, there's a lot of citations in there and whatnot, and it's the 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 content can be quite difficult to kind of uh, dissect and understand. Whereas I can remember when I was like writing becoming, and I was writing the, the the psychological lessons in there. I had to be very very mindful of being too academic, and I wanted it to. It had to. We had to find the weight in it where we got the academic message across in terms of the psychological underpinnings for each lesson, but we had to make it digestible for for all types of reader uh, so that were like the main i think that's the the biggest really achievement of that is is you've got me at a really really young age writing my experiences down in the diary and then to then go in acad- and write academic lessons 20 years later were just the the there were too much gap in between it so we just had to kind of marry it up so yeah, there is, there is a challenge. There's definitely a challenge in it. Okay, so the most purely selfish question I've ever asked on a podcast. When I write, I write like a wanker who wants to impress other people. And yes. I struggle to simplify. And I know because of that, my message goes above people's heads, not because they're unable to understand it, but because they're just in a different frame of mind when they're processing stuff that I write. Like, how do you work on like... not simplifying that message but making it more palatable i think it's just i've always been told to to, once you've written something down especially a paragraph read it out loud and you you read it out loud and you always find flaws in it that's the first level of breaking it down and then you, you keep kind of you keep coming back to it and looking at it and you can always kind of you can always kind of improve it but it's just it's kind of going in at a multi-layered kind of perspective, really. Reading it out loud, looking at where... I've, another kind of analogy that, that a mentor's once taught me before, especially when we were writing Becoming, was use your words like ammunition. So use them sparingly. You don't need to... Uh, you don't need to uh, procrastinate in the, in, the, in the paragraph and say too much. Just be really direct and to the point and use your, use your words like ammunition. The less, the better. And that's always really stuck with me, really. Make the point, like, bang, and just don't over-procrastinate with, with what you're saying. And I think that nice. kind of taking that different approach from different angles, it just, you end up with something that's quite digestible, but also, it's also small, really. Yeah, is that something you're mainly doing in the editing process, or are you thinking that consciously as you're writing? Not always consciously, because sometimes you can, if you're on, like, a bit of a a bit of a run, you can kind of, you can do two or three, four paragraphs in, in in a very short space of time. It's kind of when I go back then and I just kind of put the attention to detail into what I'm saying and start looking at how I can back up what I'm saying and look at where the citations I think need to go and whatnot, that I kind of look at it then and just think, you know what, this this can be kind of done better. We can We can tighten up here. We can make this better. I can explain the point a lot better here. And yeah, it, it definitely helps. Okay. That's super useful. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For just, personally, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. When you're um, actually, let's let's link back in because I don't want to forget this. You mentioned there about studying community and what that um, comprised of. Where do you think community is now for most people? Community. Um, it's a good question. I think it, it's 
Community's changed a lot, right? I think I think like back in the like back in the day, especially like the eighties before the emergence of mobile phones, I think the community was very kind of on your doorstep kind of community. Uh, but I think it's definitely it's definitely changed as as time's gone on and you've got like you've got the likes of you're always interconnected no matter what you whether you're on social media or you've got your mobile phone. So I think communities I don't think it's as probably as strong and as loyal as what it used to be. I think it's more kind of diverse and fluent. Uh, sorry, fluid as uh, as as we kind of as, as we're going on, and I think that technological advancements have definitely got a massive kind of input on that. Really, absolutely, man. And then to loop back into where we took that off, when you're writing for, I suppose, self discovery or in a journaling style, I assume you still do keep a journal of, of types. I do. I do. I go through. I go through stages really where I just I, I'm I'm always kind of writing things down, mate. To be honest, I I can be. It's really weird. It's like when I start writing and I'm writing about a particular topic, everything that I stumble across or everything that I, I make person that I'm aware of, kind of it comes in. So I get immediately, in a way, alerted to certain words, mindset stuff, content like your content and stuff like that, and you you're taking little notes and you'll get like a little, an Instagram feed of seven mindset stages that produce, I don't know, elite outcomes. And that kind of stuff reinforces what you're thinking about and then you write it down. So I'm always kind of writing down and making notes in, in my phone and just looking at ways to get better or just expressing what I'm thinking. Yeah, that was, that was, that's how I thought then and this is how we can produce and 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 take a point or a particular paragraph or chapter further really what have you changed recently about the way you think about i suppose mental performance mental performance so i think resilience is something that i think it'll become the big buzzword soon and not for probably the reasons that everybody thinks i think that we, i've been looking at re resilience for quite some time really and i don't think that resilience is resilient and I think that our our societal understanding and perception of it creates a monster for mental health problems and challenges. I think that we we put too much weight on it and we, we feel that the value in being resilient is that we should just crack on kind of thing and just get on with it despite how we're feeling and just turn up and put a smile on his face. And I think that that goes against our organic psychological kind of compass really i think that we we're doing ourselves a disservice and others by our flawed expectations of what the idealistic uh perception of resilience is and our physiological resilience too like the way yes. you create and positively adapt to like physiological resilience isn't through this kind of constant aggressive smashing your head against yeah. a brick wall. Like if you think about building the resilience to running volume, for example, you run to a point where you stress yourself and then you take some time to recover. Then you come back. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're talking about nervous system regulation as well, you intentionally stress yourself and then you get parasympathetic. You, you get yes. that rest and rest and digest mode. And that is what creates the ability to adapt. And I had this, um, this nervous system coach, I suppose you could put, 
her as one yoga teacher um, on the podcast before you. And her name's Jill Miller. And she talked about resilience as the ability to adapt and to bounce. Yeah, sure. And like she's saying how it's great going from zero to a hundred, but so many of us live at that hundred, but not going sure. from hundred to zero. And I think yeah. that's yeah. what people. It's so important. Are, it's so important. The resilience conversation. Yeah. It's, uh, I think that resilience should be like viewed in sprints, really much like what you're saying. You go, you kind of go to a certain point or you go all out, but you've got to take your foot off the gas. And it's often difficult, you know, mate, because the ta- the point at which you need to rest and take that step back is often the point where you're feeling really good. And it's, it's knowing when, when you're in a good place and you've, you've got good progression just to take a, your, your foot off the gas. I think as human beings, we're always foot on the gas, foot on the gas. We're, we're winning, we're producing. Let's just keep going. Let's keep going. And it, I think it, it's, a fine line between feeling brilliant and going over the edge. And once you're over the edge and you're going into exhaustion and burnout, I think you've, you've kind of, you're in a position, a point there where you're going to have to take a long period of time off. And that is completely detrimental to performance. So I use the, like the, the analogy in, in, in the book of if you've got like a watertight door and you don't maintain it at some point, it's going to lose its resilience and let water in. And it's just, it's, it's exactly the same. And we're no, we are like, we're so not, prepared in a way for resilience we're like organic structures and we're not we're not man-made and even man-made resilient objects that we that we produce are, are, are not under certain pressures we'll lose the resilience so it's just a case of uh yeah i think that's quite a catastrophic uh potentially catastrophic impact on on performance is resilience and our mission well, suppose- what we do have over man-made structures is the ability to adapt and to generate new forms. Just the yeah. same as like I can adapt to a strength training block or an yeah. endurance block or a gymnastics yeah. block of training. I can adapt to a psychological stress, physical stress, um, boardroom stress, like the fear of uh, looking over exposure whilst climbing. Like there's all those different yeah. adaptations that we can make if we are disciplined enough in the in the recuperation phase that's it mate it's been disciplined it's been disciplined in the recuperation it's, t- it's taking the time off potentially if it's a working kind of in- environment taking some time off and not earning the money rather than thinking you know what the money's an offer i'm going to go out and earn it i'm going to go out and earn it and all of a sudden you burnt out it's it's just it's just been really smart and it's 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 maximum self-discipline right it's been self-disciplined to go out and do it being but being self-disciplined looking at it as a marathon rather than rather than a, a massive sprint to to gather whatever you can gather what's your personal experience of that been like bad bad and that's why i kind of i've reflected on it and and kind of wrote about it i i left the marines and i went out and did private security uh i did maritime security first and i went and did well and did hostile security in in afghan uh bodyguard and and it during my maritime uh maritime security days it were nothing to do with the hostile environments or whatever it was semi to non-hostile some of it the majority of it but it were more it were being away being isolated being in really poor conditions sometimes on ships having no internet being completely cut off from 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 the world really and i just found myself in that moment just not being good being isolated uh, that, that's what i learned about myself that if i'm in real social isolation situations and i'm on my own my mind kind of i've got i've always had ocd and it it kind of plays tricks with me and it goes from ocd to intrusive thoughts 
And I've also tried to, I've always tried to just push on, push on, push on. And event, like when I was doing the maritime, I eventually got into a point where I was just constantly checking things and constantly checking that light switches were off, that taps were off. And it just, I got into a place where I'd no longer believed in a way what, what, what were the information that were coming through from my eyes. So I'd look at a bedside light, I'd press the switch to turn it off. But it, the fact that it was off, it didn't, it wasn't comforting enough. I had to keep turning it on, turning it off and counting to 10 until I knew it was fully off. It was really strange, mate. Uh, but that were all because I'd wanted to stay out for nine months at a time to earn the money and not go home. Where I should have just done, I don't know, two weeks on a week off and just played the long game. Instead, I just went out and just thought, you know what, I'll just I'll just grizz this out and I'll stay out for as long as I can and earn all this money while the money's there. But it, but it broke me mentally. So that's one thing that I've consistently seen as a negative attribute or an attribute that's a strength within the military that becomes a negative impact on Civvy Street. It's that ability to suffer. Yes, exactly. Because you're playing a different game. You're playing a different um, approach with a different set of rules and a different time horizon. And you have like, you're part of, I I suppose, a smaller structure. So you're less replaceable in that and you've got to take responsibility for the energy in which sounds like i think when you come out of a very tough environment it sounds like weakness and softness yeah you're yeah you're effectively a different person at that time yeah i mean you've got so much you've got the the external pulls are that people are expecting that of you given your background and, and the title that you used to have then the internal pull is that you think that you are that person you've got to live up to that kind of that 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 stereotype regardless of how you're feeling so there's so much pressure on you and you almost can't get out of it and you go out there and you're doing especially like in afghan when stay that there for about 18 months and at that point i was really not in a very good place mentally nothing to do with ptsd or anything like that uh, but it would just it would just burn out constant time away living under all these uh different conditions and 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 some hostile places and then yeah i just i just burnt out mate and i just and i thought that by applying resilience and just keep going i would come out the the other end it would kind of go in a cycle but it just got so heavily entrenched that i got to a point where i would just i would just completely in a in a poor way mentally and i'd just abuse resilience just because i felt that that were accepted sorry that was expected of me and that's what i expected of myself as well and like you said, you've got all these, if you can't, if you put your hand up and say, look, I'm just, I'm not feeling great. I need some time off. Then people think you're weak. And it's, it is nonsense, but it is, it's a thing, right? I don't even think it's people. It's you. Like that's yeah. my personal experience anyway. Yeah. Like I, I, completely, I, agree. Gone, yeah. I need to take some time off. It's like, it's been not my wife's impression of how I'm doing yeah. or it's not uh, my client's impression. It's my internal impression of like, Oh, this sure. is weakness. If I'm not able to completely nail everything and then you come up with um, imaginative ideas of how someone else that you know would be coping with the same things, like it's a little fucker that goes around, around, around. Yeah. Like, this is the stand I should be hitting, which is, again, a super useful thing that happens in the military because you've got a different purpose. Whereas yeah. now 
in Civi Street in a more uh, fluid environment where you have a small, you're part of a small system. It's a, it can be a limitation. I thought, or, or yeah, not almost always is because the resilient, the, not resilience, the the ability to grizz things out is definitely a strength. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think I think it's there's a bit of a paradox to resilience because if you apply science based methods to the resilience and counter countering burnout and whatever else that comes with non-scientific uh, applications of resilience and, and cultivation. Uh, Non-science will protect the mind to a certain extent, just like it protects the body in training. Uh, you've, you've, you've done too much running. Based on your analytics, you need to take time off. Similar kind of thing. The problem with that is, is that I think if you applied science to developing mindset for certain jobs, i.e. the military and, and jobs like that, I don't think you can go deep enough in order to really find yourself and find out what you don't like. So you, you, you can't simulate the war in, in, in effect and the, the, the realities of war. So you have to go down to that deeper level that's probably not very scientific. Now, the problem with going down to that level is, is that you end up, potentially creating mental health issues and problems in the future for people. So go on, tell me more. What do you mean by that? I think that, I think, yes, we can, we can, we can apply resilience to ourselves and some people you can learn resilience. You can learn how to be resilient. You can adapt mentally to certain things, but I don't think there's a lot of longevity in it. And like you said, when you apply it in different settings, uh, and you were tr you trying to uh, apply that? I just th feel like you potentially are doing long term damage to your mental health. I think that if you injected science based me science based based methods into the cultivation of mindset and resilience and producing soldiers and robust athletes or whatever contact sports, you could have more longevity in mindset and mental health using those methods. However. I don't think that those methods would allow you to bring the athlete or the potential soldier or whatever deep enough in order to get them to the front line or into onto the ground, into the stadium, into competitive sport with the correct tools in order to go out and execute what they need to execute. So I think science is probably the way forward, but it restricts your ability to get somebody fully prepared but when you get somebody fully prepared, I think you've got more chance of them becoming or being susceptible to mental mental problems. Mm, so it's a bit of a it's a paradox. That's really interesting. The the thing that's coming to mind is that we have two perspectives that we hold or two worldviews. Yeah. One of them is the scientific world worldview, which I think society is pretty enamored with right now. We yeah. look at everything has to be quantifiable. And we've lost the other worldview, which for want of a better term is the kind of religious worldview or philosophical worldview, maybe. Um, spiritual could be another way of putting it, which yeah. is like, what's the meaning of this? It's the bigger questions. It's the ones that have no correct answers and are open to interpretation. And I can never ima <laughs> imagine a recruit going through how many weeks of training and someone sitting down saying, well, this is the spiritual side to um to it just doesn't happen does it <laughs> no it it doesn't and it wouldn't and for the purpose of the military which is 
pretty short term on individuals. I don't think it's necessary in terms of their ultimate goal. Sure. But if you are, I think, looking to to develop fully and wholly, you've got to have both of those sides. That's holy with a W, not an H. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not holy. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's, it's equal parts. And like I've certainly found that previously I've been like, oh, if it's, you can't prove it by science, it's, it's bollocks. Or if you can't test yeah. something, it's, it's, it's pointless yeah. because it's got to be quantifiable. And then I've also done the other side of things as well, which like, well, science is not meaningless, but it's less important than my subjective worldview. Sure, sure. Yeah, I just... I'm kind of contradicting myself here because science 100% has a place and it does in sport and performance. It has it has absolutely got its place. It's excelled uh, our understandings and our teachings and, and, and manifestations of performance. I think there's no, but I, I think there's no substitute for the really hard grinding it out kind of exposures that you can give to a human being in order to prepare them to be robust science will never create somebody that's robust it'll look at it'll look at longevity and analytics and figures and performance whereas the robust is like the only way you can kind of teach that or elicit that within the individual is taking them to the dark places that science wouldn't allow yeah because it's not lab friendly it's not lab friendly and it's not messy it's messy it's messy and it's not pc and it's done behind closed doors in effect uh and science would lose the trousers at it kind of thing at the, at the teachings and the methods but i think to, to to shorten up i think that there's some jobs like military like whatever else where science in a, in a way would be great to a certain extent but it's got kind of no place if you wanted to produce a particular person yeah i almost feel like that's where life happens in the part outside of science sure but then you've got scientific aspects and processes to rely on and to explain but then the actual application of that for an individual that's a different arena almost or it's a it's like the mu- this music compared to science yeah 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 i think um yeah you, you just need i mean to cult to cultivate robustness and mental resilience and mental strength and really really find who you are you've just got to be put into really really adverse situations that are probably not measurable you just they're just they're just situations where you just you just have to find that in a in a resolve really to to overcome it and and just get comfortable in the mundane and and just churn it out do that every single day and it's 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 yeah it's it's just it's your appetite isn't it for it and i think some people are just are are built differently and and i don't think that you can get line 10 people up and with the right methods all 10 people will eventually arrive at the end it's you've only got to look at training and 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 for that but i just think that uh conversely i think that it can be quite damaging long term i don't think it's got a lot of longevity if you carry on applying those methods and onto everything without taking a taking some time off 
Nice. So let's take an aggressive right turn here. Talk to you about gauging atmospheres in life-threatening situations. Yeah, so that's part of the PhD that I'm kind of uh, like embarking on now. So uh, I've been doing some work with Surrey University for quite some time, uh, looking at doing some various kind of stuff on their entrepreneurial thinking module for at master's degree level. Looking at fear and the 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 personal interpretation of fear and and how, and how it's completely assigned to the individual. Really, fear is is an illusion, and we know that it's an illusion just based on the fact that people interpret fear differently around the same event. So it is just all obviously we share the same kind of fears that are great white sharks or whatever else, but. The fear in terms of events is, is, is vastly different for other people. So we've been kind of looking at various things and then we, as we started talking about atmospherics. What, it must be something in your, in your environment that your senses pull in that, that tell you that an, that an event is particularly hostile. What is it? And then I got onto talking about when I got attacked by pirates in Somalia and how I just felt completely in tuned with my environment. And at that point, all I... I knew exactly what to do. I knew how to instruct the team what to do. I were like team leader on the job. And I'm not saying that that's solely. Everybody has these experiences that are put into these environments, that are put in these situations. They all say that they feel the most alive when they're in, in these situations and they're fully in tune with their environment. The hearing's a lot better. And, and I felt exactly the same, albeit I was scared to death. But in that moment, I can remember the like there were no bias to me thinking at all. I just, I wasn't thinking about anything else. I was just completely locked in, and all my senses were completely attuned to that environment in order to ensure survival. So we've been looking at this gauging atmospherics, and one of the professors at Surrey University said, "Well, I think it's uh, it's intuition. So I want to call it intuition, or shall we call it my understanding of that is called weak signals." And that's what the work on incorporates weak signals. In the military, we call it gauging atmospherics. And one of the other doctors that's on the program said, uh, well, I like to call it the spidey sense. What is it? It's like your, your spidey sense when you, how do you know when a certain social situation has gone wrong or it's going to go wrong? What are the triggers in the environment? And for some people, it's some people don't realize that they're walking into a, a situation. Some people can see it a mile off. So we've been trying to kind of harness that and bottle that up and see how we can potentially elicit it in people without being in a non-threat environment and how we can use that and those weak signals or gauging atmospherics or spidey sense and how we can put that into situations that are ethically okay. So we're using augmented reality, putting them into situations like that and just seeing how or if we can elicit this kind of thing uh, and now we can make better decisions in workplaces without it being hostile unbiased decisions in order to make corporations more effective so that's what we're that looking is at fascinating my mind's going yeah. in so many different places here firstly is i've had this experience when i am in the avalanche train walking through the mountains with mates and then something feels spooky and you're like huh what's this yeah. like yeah and part of that 
it feels like intuition, but maybe you're perceiving things or your body is perceiving things that you're unaware of what it's perceiving. Yes. It's maybe unconscious within that. Maybe um, one of the things you look for the whole time in avalanche train is like shooting cracks or whoops, like the sound of the, um, yes. That, yeah. If you hear that a ton, you're like, okay, I need to be aware of that. But maybe there's very small, subtle signs of that, or maybe there's an association game happening. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Also, you don't know how much to trust that because sure. that is just a, a feeling too. What are the limitations that you're, or what are your, um, what are your expected findings with this? Like, how do you expect this is limiting people in the world of business? I think in the world of business and innovation and whatnot, and that's kind of the key area of research that we want to kind of tap into. There's potentially too much bias in thinking uh, when it comes to decision making, uh, and it can halt productivity. It can lead to poor decisions when you introduce bias into thinking. So it's just looking at how we can kind of bottle up these high risk situations and how that removes bias from your thinking and seeing if we can kind of transfer it into corporate settings that's got no risk to life, but there's still, there's still risk, right? That's what they do all the, all these situations, hold an element of risk, whether it's financial business or, or personal risk. So it's using risk as the, the main fabric and just seeing how we can kind of potentially cross deck that. Can you give me an example of the biases that are most common there? In corporates? Yeah, in corporates that that may create problems that we're not really kind of, um, well, hoping aren't there. Yeah, it's just like uh, it could be your own kind of personal biases around or your own belief system around around or ethical, uh, your ethics around anything that you're potentially doing at work. Uh, you could have relational biases within within the workplace or whatever or relational issues or, or constructs that potentially uh, hamper that effectiveness, that effectiveness of making decisions and making, of communicating effectively really. So it's just a case of using these situations where you're putting people into risk situations and just seeing how we can basically remove bias really uh, from us thinking uh, so that it's purely focused on this is the issue, this is how we need to get out of it and how can we get out of it effectively and ensure not survival, well, survival, but business survival, uh, deal survival, all that kind of, all that kind of thing, really. Nice. So I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah, it's 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 really really fascinating stuff. It's interesting, and it's what 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 we found is is that we've we've put my interpretation of it from coming from a military background, then two of the other uh, the other the other team. When you pull the circles, bring the circles together. You have an overlap of of why the overlap and this and this the certain key features in the middle that you're able to say, well, that theme runs through all of how we interpret this and how we're seeing it, uh, and that's probably an area of approach, or that's where in this particular field of research, that's where it's missing. It's interesting, mate, because we've been talking about this for quite some time. 
for over like 18 months really in terms of bunkering down on this research topic and how we're going to study it and unbelievably a couple of years ago the u.s marines got in touch with Suriuni, and with this same kind of topic or area of research and wondered how they could potentially unpick it and study it so there's definitely something there that they're looking at in terms of how they want to uh explore this kind of this 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 kind of thing yeah i'm excited to see where that ends up really yeah yeah it's good mate it's it's exciting yeah yeah i bet so let's uh let's wrap up by saying where we can find your books won't follow you on social media uh 0.1 everything like tell me about where we we should go to find out more about you and your ideas and everything you have on offer yeah cool mate so uh i've my website is uh uk. uh books are literally all online amazon waterstones and it's on audible as well it's doing really well on audible which is which is great to see uh you've got me narrating my uh dull northern tones uh after after the book and then the 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 past stuff which was me when i was 20s narrated by a voice actor which is which is brilliant he's done a brilliant job so yeah all over and i've got a book coming out next year as well in june uh so yeah really exciting really exciting stuff fantastic stuff man um social media where can people follow you yeah social media gareth timmins author on instagram uh gareth timmins books on facebook and yeah linkedin as well gareth timmins books wonderful thank you very much dude um great and i will speak to you very soon as well yes (laughs) see you in real life absolutely mate